Welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am here, back here at the birthplace of Holy Smokes at the Hinamine Haven in Monument, Colorado. And I'm here with Kay Hidamine, the father of Holy Smokes, or as I call him, the Godfather, and Steve Grison, longtime friend of Kay's. And so, Kay, on today's episode, I wanted to kind of interview you. So many people ask me, so who is Kay? What does he do? Tell me a little bit about him. You're a mysterious figure in the Holy Smokes community. And so I figure what better time to actually get your story on tape than here with cigars and with a couple good friends. And so welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get started, Kay, what are we all smoking? See, what are you smoking? I'm smoking a Jaime Garcia. Nice. A Reserve Especial. It's a great cigar. It's one of those ones that are very firm to the touch. Yeah. Sort of tightly rolled, but draws really, really well. And that's a great family going back to his dad, Jose, who started in Cuba, all the way down to the My Father line great history. with the sons. Yeah, good cigar. Yeah, family operation. So is that a little more bold for you, though, bro, usually? This one's strong. Uh, yeah. yeah, so certain times of day, it's better. Yeah, especially with a good Lagavulin that's or right. a good scotch. That's right, absolutely. A little like peaty ones. Ooh, come on now. So I'm smoking a um, my father's, uh, the judge. Judge, because that was the one that was in the humidor as I was walking out here for this, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm going to pull out that judge that was gifted to me. And I am smoking an Undercrown. Here you go. That's I got a great cigar. It's I, a I great got stick. A, I got uh, five of them plus, I think, fifteen others on cigar bid, part yeah. of a sampler. Great pack. value. And yeah, it's it's, it's a great a dollar stick. for dollar cigar. Oh yeah, good, robust, yeah, tasty. So K. On the very first episode, we talked about the history of Holy Smokes and how this thing started. And for people that want to listen to that episode, please go back to episode number one, the history of Holy Smokes. But because so many people know who you are, but not a lot of people actually know your story. And so I really wanted to kind of take some time and unpack that a little bit more and uh, really give the audience a chance to really kind of get to know you a little bit better. So tell me... Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Southern California in a Buddhist home. My parents immigrated from Japan in 1956. I'm 55 years old. And so I was born in Southern California in a place called Upland, California, uh, just uh, east of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And my father was a landscaper and a gardener. So he was a Japanese gardener that would cut lawns there in Upland. And, uh, you know, not a wealthy family. We were, you know, but typical Asian American kind of overachieving and uh, hard studying kids. You know, I have two older sisters and we excelled in school and all that. And uh, so I grew up in that kind of context. My first language actually was Japanese, Steve. So for the first three years of my life, uh, I spoke Japanese and I learned English. So when I went into kindergarten, you know, started really diving into obviously the English language, but we spoke Japanese at home, but we would speak English in public. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up in a Buddhist home. Mm-hmm. Where did coming to faith come in? So growing up, I was uh, very much a seeker. I was very much parallel the story of like the Pearl of Great Price. 
I knew there was something out there. I had a gap in my life, in my heart. I was searching for significance or meaning in my life. And somewhat well-read, I was reading quite a bit in the honors classes in Nietzsche, Camus, and and Sartre of sort of nihilistic writings. And really the logical conclusion of nihilism is, you know, why exist? You know, what's the point of life? And, you know, it was like, well, is it to make money? Is it to be an influence, a benefit to society? What is it? So I was really searching and yearning for that. So in that backdrop, you know, I was a 4.0 student, did really well in school, big man on campus. I was a leader on a very large high school campus out there. And I was really searching, really searching. And mm-hmm. so I went to a leadership camp, which was totally secular, non-church related whatsoever, for leaders of large campuses, campuses over you know, two, 3,000 students in Southern California. It's about 186 people. How old were you at the time? I was 16 years old. Okay. And so I went off to this camp in San Diego Mountains, and they broke us up into small groups. And there was this one woman there named Marilyn who's next to her neighbor who's like a mom to her because she came from a dysfunctional home. Mother was an alcoholic, abusive, but her next door neighbor really loved on her and cared for her. Uh, she passed away while we were at this conference. Mm-hmm. It was a five-day deal, so Monday mm-hmm. to Friday. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And so Tuesday, she gets news, get a phone call saying that this woman had passed away, and she was very depressed, very sad. So our small group leader said, hey, well, why don't we all get together? And he had just finished his first year at Harvard, you know, in psychology. So he said, hey, let's have a gestalt session, which is like, a, you know, let's talk about our emotions or how we feel about death, yeah. you know. And, you know, well, 16-year-old, what do we know about death? I mean, maybe have a dog die or a parent, grandparent die, but we really don't have that much interaction. But, you know, being hormonal and 16, you know, was getting, we were in this cabin sitting Indian style and we're talking about death. We're all getting depressed and and kind of weepy-eyed and all that and uh, getting depressed about it. And about, oh, about a half hour into it, after our sharing, uh, someone starts singing a song, Kumbaya. Okay. Now, as a Buddhist, I thought Kumbaya was a Kenyan folk song. You know, I had no clue. <laughs> I had no idea. But, you know, it's an easy song, and I'm, I'm not the brightest bulb on the porch, but I can, you know, pretty easy choruses, you know, come by yeah. here, Lord, come by here. So we start singing this song, and... So we're holding hands and we're in this Indian style, style sitting down on the ground of this cabin in San Diego mountains. And all of a sudden the building starts shaking. And we think it's an earthquake. I mean, it's Southern California, right? So we're looking around and we're going, oh man, the building's shaking. And then we realize there's this huge roar of a sound coming down that's going to crash into the roof. So we think it's like maybe a plane is going to crash into the building. Yeah, it's pretty trippy, right? And right when we think it's about to hit the roof, a light just breaks out throughout the entire room. What? Yeah. And wave after wave of this peace and joy and love floods this room. And we're encapsulated in this light where we can't even see each other. Now, what was wild about it, Steve, was... How many people were there? There There's 12 of us sitting in this room. Everyone experienced the same thing. Same thing. And... I could hear what everybody was thinking and feel what everybody was feeling without one bit of confusion. It was wild. What was everyone thinking and feeling? Um, bewilderment, confusion, wondering what's going on. I mean, obviously there was fear there, but then also an excitement of this is something we've never experienced. 
and the source of this light went to the middle of the room and it kind of exploded in intensity even more and it was the most wonderful feeling that I ever had in my life. And it went to Marilyn first and I could hear what she was saying but I couldn't hear what the source of this light was saying to her. Marilyn was the girl who the lost girl, her mom. Her, yeah. And she was saying stuff like, I miss her. I wish she was around. Is she okay? You know, just yeah. questions that you would ask, right? Yeah. So it went to another person, another person, another person, then to me. And my question as a Buddhist was, have I reached nirvana? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, a little logical. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, enlightenment, you know, I'm like a little bodhisattva now, you know. And an audible voice said, you have not reached nirvana, but I'm your Lord God, and you will know me. Yeah. So it went to the next person, next person, next person, and went around the room, and then it left. Next thing I remember is we were all holding hands. And nobody was saying anything audibly during this time. You, was, you were just almost hearing each other's thoughts? Yeah. That's crazy. Wild. And as we were, next thing I remember is, you know, the light has left. And, you know, looking back, it was the presence of God. But yeah. And I'm sitting there, and we start crying. And it wasn't out of fear, but it was that we wanted to be back in that presence. Because it was so wonderful. Yeah. That this, what we call <clears throat> life or reality or what we breathe and live in every day, is so much less than, so to speak, being in that presence. Yeah. So um, man came looking for us because we were, it felt like 15, 20 minutes. But we were actually gone for almost two hours. Yeah. And he came in, opened up the curtain, walked in the room, fell on the ground, and he said, what the heck happened here? Because we're all crying. And yeah. You know, a person would say, oh, Jesus was here. Another person said, Holy Spirit. Another said, God was here. I sort of said, Lord God, sort of half-heartedly because I didn't know who he was. And he just started looking at me, and he goes, oh, I missed him. I missed him. I said, who? He goes, Jesus. I was like, Jesus? I mean, like as in the Christian Jesus thing, you know? Yeah. Because I had no exposure to Christianity before that. And he just started crying and he said, I've always wanted to be in the presence of God. And then I made the connection, of course, Lord God and God. And, but then I started hearing these other phrases, you know, Holy Ghost, Father, Jesus. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what the heck, you know? Yeah. Well. And keep in mind, this is not even a Christian gathering. No, this is not even a Christian gathering yeah. at all. So that was Tuesday, and then, and then fast forward to like Friday, I sit down with him, and I said, hey, Frank, I said, uh, how do I get to know this Lord God? He says, I'm going to know him. And he said, okay, when you get home to Upland, go find a church that preaches about Jesus out of the Bible, and you'll know who this Lord God is. I was like, all right, so I'm on a mission, I'm on a task, you know. So I get down the mountain. You know, drive down my Ford flatbed truck and I, you know, go hit some churches that yeah. in this August. So, you know, before school started in September. And I go to like, I said, I probably go about 15 churches. I, I even went to Mormon LDS places. I went to a synagogue. I went to SDA. I went everywhere. I went Presbyterian, yeah. Baptist. And I shared this story with them. And each one of them looked at me and they go, okay, we know who you are, you know, because you're in the newspapers and stuff for awards and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. We know your family. And by the way, we were the only minority in the whole town. So, you know, being Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, suburban yeah. in California at the time. And they each gave me a card or they gave me the name and number of Dr. Rosenstein, who was a child psychologist. <laughs> they thought I had gone nuts. Right. 
Now, this was before. Yeah. Seriously? Seriously. Totally serious. Now, in that time frame, I also, we would call each other because obviously that was a very bonding experience. And so this was before cell phones, before email. So I would call these other 11 people and we would just recount what happened to sort of, one, remind each other, but also to say, well, what are you doing about it? You know? Mm -hmm. And we all just began searching for God. None of us were believers and or followers of Jesus. Yeah. And there was a man that would come on campus, my high school campus, when you could do that legally, you know, they had Bible studies. He's a pastor yeah. and he'd have 400 kids every lunchtime sharing about this Jesus. Now remember I'm a big man on campus. I'm ASB. I'm a total jerk. I'd be one of the hecklers. Right, you're I mean, a jerk. You oh, were a jerk totally. when you were younger. Still am. <laughs> is that I just was? I'd heckle him. I'd say, "Hey, Dave, you know, you know, if you go sleep with one of these girls, you know, you're gonna go jail." You know, I, I was horrible. I was just terrible. So he did not like me. So that first day of school, he had this Bible study. He'd bring a box of Bibles and be foreign kids out there, and he'd be teaching about Jesus. And I was just very quiet. It was very unusual. I was just sitting on the sidelines listening to him. So I waited for the crowd to leave, for the bell to class start. Mm-hmm. And I went up to him. I said, uh, Pastor Dave, I, I need to talk to you about something. And he said, what? What do you want, Kay? He was waiting for me to like rail into him. Yeah. I said, no, really, seriously, I need to talk to you about what happened to me this summer. So he stopped, and he put the box down, and he goes, what happened? So I shared with him the story, and he starts laughing, right? He goes, oh, Second Kings and Acts. And I looked, deer in the headlight look, right? Yeah, because you have no idea what Second Kings or Acts is. No idea. No clue. And he goes, oh, Mr. Honors AP, big man on campus. Do you even know what I'm talking about? I said, dude, I'm a Buddhist. What are you talking about? He goes, you need to get a Bible, and you need to read these two books in the Bible, which is the greatest book that has made the most, you know, influence in the world. Yeah. Best-selling book in the world, and has impacted the world and transformed it. And I said, well, can I borrow a Bible and read it right now? He said, no, you need to go out and buy yourself one. <laughs> it was tough. He wouldn't, oh. even, he wouldn't even give me one, Steve, right? And I'm like, what the heck, you know? And I said, can I have it? He goes, no, you need to go buy one. I said, all right, you know, basically screw you. I'm going to go get myself one. So went into a bookstore, bought a Bible. And that night when I read Second Kings and Acts, Second Kings talked about the pillar of fire and you know, all that. And then you know, the upper room and acts. And I went, oh my gosh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So I went back to him. I said, okay, I read it. And I said, how do I know this Lord God, Dave? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. what's the story? And he looks at me and goes, okay, if you want to know who the Lord God is, which is Jesus, you need to come to Bible study every Friday for the next six months. And if you miss one of them, don't come back. Ooh. Tough love, baby. Yeah. And I just said, is it worth it? And he looked at me and goes, you had the experience, is it? And he had me. I said, you're right. I'm in. Yeah. And so I started going to Bible studies. And of course, Bible studies turned into church services, turned into youth group, all that stuff. And by April, I'm ready to commit my life to Christ and become a follower of Jesus. Well, my dad sees this. Okay, Buddhist home, right? And he goes, hey. How did he see it? Well, he just saw a transformation in my life in that. You know, I wasn't dating a lot of girls, chasing tail, 
you know, I wasn't partying all night. I was, you know, all those things. It just just happens naturally when, yeah. you know, the Word of God gets in and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to you and life transformation occurs. And I was respectful to him because I was really a jerk to even my own dad. And uh, he saw some changes and you would think he'd be happy for me, right? But then Saturday night, he pulls me aside before I'm going to church one Sunday in April and he goes, okay, if you decide to become a Christian, you're going to be disowned from the family. 16 years old. 16. And I was, I was like, well, what are you saying? He goes, well, you know, we have this Buddhist temple in our house and we have pictures of the ancestors. And when I die, you inherit this Buddhist shrine. And three times a day we pray and we remember our ancestors. My picture's going to be there. Who's going to pray to me when I die? And you're rejecting me. You're rejecting our culture. You're rejecting who we are as Japanese people and as a family. And so, you know, for me, it was like, all right. He goes, you know, done. I'm not going to do it. Right. I'm 16. Mm -hmm. So the next day I go to church, sitting through the service, and I'm going to tell Pastor Dave that I'm not going to be coming to church anymore. I'm not going to go to the youth group. I'm not going to go to Bible studies anymore. And Dave comes up to me. Uh, before I could say anything, and he goes, hey, Kay, I was praying for you last night, and the Lord led me to a passage in Matthew where it says, whoever gives up father, mother, brother, and sisters for me in the sake of the gospel will receive a hundredfold. Now, had you ever read that scripture before? Sure, but he, like, nailed me, you know. Yeah. Before I, and he didn't know what I had talked to my dad the night before about this. And I said, ah, Dave, you're such a jerk. You know, and I told him what happened, and I said, and he looked at me with just deep compassion. By then, we'd grown to love each yeah, other. Yeah. And he said, well, Kay, you're going to have to make some decisions, and I'll be praying for you. All right. So the next week, I just numbed myself. You know, drugs, alcohol, whatever, every night. I just didn't want to come to that place of decision, right? Yeah. Friday rolls around. I'm ready to go out and party. My girlfriend's in the truck with me. And right when I turn on the car, I have to turn off because I start crying, just weeping uncontrollably. And she looks at me and she goes, she happened to be a member of the church. Yeah. And she goes, so are you ready to go see Dave? And I said, yeah, I'm ready. So she had to drive me down to Dave's house because I couldn't drive. I was so emotionally distraught. And I walk into his house, which was always open. He always had people over. Yeah. You know, he was from the Jesus movement. Yeah. You know, he'd have homeless people stand in the front room. I mean, he'd have, he married a former prostitute that had three kids. And he had a prayer room in the back where he'd spend time in prayer and, you know, studying the word and stuff. And so I went back there and these two guys were in there praying with their backs to me so they didn't see me come in. And it was him and another guy. And that guy was my girlfriend's former boyfriend. And they were both praying that I would accept Jesus and receive the Lord as my personal Lord and Savior. How wise of it was Dave to not try and force that confession or that move, but to give you, I mean, the course of between September and April, mm -hmm. April's when this happened, right? Yeah. To give you that time to really kind of come to that place of decision. That's right. And such wisdom and maturity, I think, in the Lord and not pushed it and ramming it down my throat and giving me that time to really own my own faith 
not saying, you, not, not trying to scare you with the fire insurance. Of, you're right. going to hell. If that's you right. die tomorrow, that's you're going right. to hell. That's right. And it was really amazing perception in the fact that he also realized the cost that it would have been Ooh. if I accepted Christ. Ooh. So obviously that night they both prayed with me and um, I became a follower of Jesus. And, and then the next morning I went home or that night I went home. I prayed over the Buddha shrine and I said, in the name of Jesus, I'm not going to follow you anymore, Buddha. My mom and dad were sleeping. I prayed over them. I said, Jesus, I hope that you become the Lord of their lives, you know, and I just claim them for you that they would know Jesus as well. And I went to my bedroom, went to sleep, woke up the next morning, came in at six, seven o'clock in the morning. My dad looked at me and without me even saying a word, he looked at me and said, you became a Christian last night. I can tell. I didn't say a word. Yeah. Well, that escalated. I came from a highly dysfunctional home. My dad was an alcoholic, abusive when he was younger to me physically and the kids, my sisters and my mother. And, you know, at that point I was bigger than him so he can beat me up, you know, but he just got more and more angry. You know, he wasn't drunk and he pulled out a knife after about a couple hours and put it to my heart and said, renounce your faith or die. And I I was holding a knife in my hand as he pointed to my heart and I said, then dad, I want you to know about Jesus and I want you to leave eternity with me before you kill me. And he got so angry, he threw the knife down, thank God, and broke a coffee table in front of me. And I had to call up Dave, and he had to pick me up. And basically, he said, get out of the house. You have two trash bags you can fill with your clothes, and you're going to have to change your last name. Yeah, it's pretty serious. Dave came up, picked me up in his old Volkswagen jalopy, and I lived with him for a while. And... um Finally, my mother was able to reconcile us, but really my father and I had a very strained relationship. We didn't talk to each other for a number of months, but eventually I went off to college. And then, you know, we, we were eventually reconciled with one another. Great story to this, you know, thank God, is a, I was a missionary to Japan for one summer, and on the plane ride to Japan, I wrote him a letter telling him why I became a follower of Jesus and inviting him to also become a follower of Jesus and spend eternity with the Lord and us, as, you know, together. And he came to Christ through that letter, which was translated into Japanese from the pastor that I was with in Japan, because I was teaching English there for yeah. a summer. How old were you when you sent that letter? Um, it was about, let's see, 19 years old. Okay, so three years. Three years. And he got cancer, and so he was only given about a month or two to live. What kind of cancer? It was like pancreatic cancer. Yeah, it was really bad. Yeah. Third bout of cancer. Oh, wow. And he had a stomach, bladder, and then pancreatic. It was really rough. And he wrote me back and said he received the Lord through that letter. And for the next two years, even though he was given a month to live, for the next two years we had a Bible study together for two years, every Wednesday. Yeah. So it was beautiful. And my mom came to Christ about, about five years after that. Did you see a transformation in your dad? Total. Total. You know, you know, when you grow up in a really painful home life like that, dysfunctional, abusive, it's easy to get bitter and hard. And I asked God, I said, should I address this now that he's a follower of Jesus as a brother, as, you know, how he used to beat us, you know? Yeah. And the Lord said, no, let me just be at peace at that, you know, and, and trust that I will work on his heart because only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. Yeah. 
And so he, one time, it'd be my senior year, about a year later in college, I come into the house and he's just weeping uncontrollably, which is very unusual for my father, who's rather stoic. And I said, Dad, what's going on? And he spent like 20, 30 minutes composing himself. And, and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I said, Dad, for what? I mean, you're a great dad. And he goes, I used to beat you. Mm-hmm. And he said, will you forgive me? Which just blew me away. And we cried together. We reconciled. I said, of course, I forgive you. I forgave you so many years ago. Yeah. But it was the Holy Spirit that initiated that conversion in his heart for that. Not me. That's amazing. And you said your mother accepted Christ somewhere around that 19, when you were 19. No. So five years later, when we were about 24 years old, she got uh, melogenous bone cancer, leukemia. Yeah. And she was in a lot of pain from the meds and all that and the cancer. And she said, you know, Kay, when your father would pray to Jesus, Jesus would take away the pain and the nausea. And I need that. And so my wife at that time, who I'm still married to 30 years, we were married and we laid hands on her and prayed with her and we said, take away the pain. Julie and I were praying for her because she wanted the pain to go away and we laid hands on her, prayed for her, the pain immediately went away. And this was in the hospital. Yeah. And she called my sisters in and said, when I pray to Buddha, nothing happens. But when we pray to Jesus, he takes away this pain yeah. and this nausea. And he's alive and he's powerful. And I want to serve him. So because Kay's a Christian and you're still a Buddhist to my sister, you're going to take the shrine and I'm going to follow after Jesus. <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> so 24 years old, yeah. you're married, yeah. and your mother accepts Christ. Yeah. How much longer did she? was she around? She lived another about a year or two. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it was a great time just fellowshipping with her as well, just loving on her. And knowing that you know, we're going to spend eternity together. We happened to be in the same house when she passed away. The night she passed away, she was at my sister's house. And we came over because we knew the time was pretty soon. And... Julie and I woke up and she said, I had a dream. I said, I had a dream too. And she had a dream of Jesus coming into the room with where my mom was lying down and she was smiling and her, and, uh, Jesus picked her up and took her to heaven. And I had the dream same time of Jesus coming in with my father and taking her up to heaven as well. And right after we shared that story, there was a knock on the door and the nurse came in and said, your mom just passed away. Yeah. We walked in and there was so much peace in that room that we were just reassured that she's in heaven with my dad. How many siblings you got? Two older sisters. Two older sisters. Not following after Jesus and just praying that they will come to know the Lord at some point. Still? Still praying for him. Yeah. Have a relationship with him though? Oh yeah. Fantastic relationship. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So where'd you go to college? So I went to Occidental College, uh, was involved with InterVarsity there. Um, Where's Occidental, for those that don't know? It's a small liberal arts school in Los Angeles between Glendale and Pasadena. And we had a fellowship of about 12 people, 15 people, our freshman year, small group. And 
we decided to study the gospel of Mark our sophomore year and make it open to on club day, right? Sign up just to know who Jesus is kind yeah. of thing in the gospel of Mark inductive Bible studies. And we had over 380 people sign up out of a campus of maybe 1400. Yeah. And you know what happens when you get into the word and Holy spirit starts to teach people and start loving on people uh, and start sharing Jesus with people, people come to know him. And so we had a huge revival that happened on campus. So that was a very formative years in my, my Christian walk. And what years were, were you in college? Yeah, 82 to 86. Okay. Yep. And then um, I wanted to go into ministry full time. And I was at that time at a Presbyterian church. And the three elders sat me down and said, I asked them, hey, will you send me to seminary? Yeah. And they said, you know, okay, there's a lot of pastors out there that really don't know what a real job is. You know, they go from Bible college into seminary. And, and why don't you go get a job for five years? Yeah. Give it to the Lord for five years. And then you'll be able to relate to people who work, you know, in the marketplace. That's wise. Yeah, a lot of wisdom. And uh, one of them was a guy named George Barna. <laughs> we had, we had which, a pretty... Which, which a lot of people listening to the show know who well, we know, know that name. He's a very, yeah, brilliant guy and good friend still. Another one is a name, Ralph Winter, who's a movie producer, who did X-Men and Star Trek movies and King Kong, very famous executive producer out in Hollywood and he was they were my elders and they gave me that advice which was probably the best advice and I got a job worked for Procter and Gamble small mom and pop company for about three years <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, worked for Coldwell Banker commercial real estate and then I went to Fuller Seminary after that in Pasadena with my wife how'd you meet Julie met her at church yep yeah, met her at church and uh, yeah funny story there I was uh, dating uh, the church intern at the time, which was not Julie, uh, she was 10 years older than I, rather scandalous. And Julie walked into my Bible study and, you know, I, I broke up with the church intern. The next day I asked Julie out for a date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I was that guy. <laughs> Before you uh, get too far down yeah. the story, though, you missed your entrepreneurial oh, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this ties into... Uh, my Parker and Gamble interviews, yeah. they asked me, what was my very first job? Okay. So I cut lawns for my dad. He was a gardener. But uh, when I was uh, about 12, almost 13, you know, it was you know, 70s and you know, marijuana was around. And so I tried my first, you know, marijuana joint with a friend. And I came home that night and my dad said, hey, so what'd you do today? And I said, well, I tried marijuana, you know, in a Buddhist home. You know, kind of, it was a pretty open house. You yeah. know, it was kind of like, there was yeah. really kind of no right or wrong. And, and he goes, so what did you, what did you feel? I said, well, I didn't really like it. I felt kind of out of control. I was paranoid and, you know, got the munchies afterwards and, you know. Yeah. And I said, but dad, they brought out this little bag of marijuana and it was a dime bag. And he goes, what, 10 cents? I said, no, $10. He goes, what? He goes, that's a weed. You put it in the ground and it grows. And so I over a course of time, um, as we were talking, I negotiated a deal with him because we had a 5,000 square foot greenhouse in the back and I became a grower. <laughs> and I didn't, actually I probably smoked maybe two, three times after that at the most, but I just enjoyed making money. And so I negotiated with my dad that I would, you know, rent space from him and give him 10% off gross. <laughs> How old were you at the time? About 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it became a very thriving operation in california you have to be 16 years old to drive a vehicle so i actually had to hire 
a couple guys to make my deliveries because I couldn't drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the entrepreneurial years. Hence the entrepreneur. So it wasn't like a milk route or you know, paper run or yeah. anything like that. A little more profitable than that. <laughs> we had to close it down. Um, when did you close it down? Uh, but a year or two later because one of our clients, my dad's clients, was the president of the bank. And he said, you know, why does your son have over 100,000 bucks in the bank? And he only makes deposits in 10s, 20s, and 100s. And it's probably not from growing azaleas and, you know, Boston ferns. So you better quit what you're doing. And <laughs> so my dad came home and we had another discussion over dinner. And he said, well, son, you know, I'm going to go to big house basically. And you're going to go to good juvie and you'll be out. And most importantly, you're going to bring shame to the family. And he said, you know, so I want another 15 points. <laughs> he wanted 25%. <laughs> Mitigate that risk. Yeah, we're going to have to mitigate this risk. Yeah. And uh, so I said, what, you're going to screw your son for 15 points? And we started arguing. And finally, I just said, you know, screw you. I'm going to burn it all. And he said, no, you're not. You, you like making money too much. I said, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm taking care of this. So I literally that night burned it all. Or actually, the next night, I had the guys come in that worked for me. I actually had to have workers in the greenhouse. It was that big. And I had them cut all the dope down and all yeah. the marijuana plants. And we, I burned it that night. And I stopped and... I went legit. Now, what's wild about it is I was a dual life because outwardly I was a 4.0 student. You know, Big man on campus. Yeah, yeah. Like you said. Looking at service academies, honors. Stanford, all that. And uh, yeah, and then obviously I was very lost. And I think that really, really propelled me to begin searching for what was the meaning of life and mm -hmm. the purpose of life. So how old were you when you got married? Uh, 25. Got married at 25. Um, we went to seminary in Fuller, and there we started Bible study, and the Bible study grew. It was just a Bible study. I mean, we didn't. We wanted to become church planners and missionaries, basically. And that was kind of the long-term goal of the seminary education. And, and there at Fuller's where you met yeah, Peter Wagner. That's where I went, Peter Wagner. I was his teaching assistant at Fuller Theological Seminary in church growth. Yeah. And you know, prayer, spiritual warfare, all that. And also, during that time frame, we were mentored by a man named John Wimber from the Vineyard Churches, who started the Vineyard, and taught us how to pray for the sick and power evangelism and all that. So we learned a ton from both of them. John Wimber has probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. Mm. Something like, "Never trust I never trust a man that doesn't have a limp. That's right. Mm. That's I great. love, mm. love, love that quote. That's right. We all have limps. And if they say you don't have a limp, then you're probably BSing, right? Yeah. You pull up the BS flag. So we started this Bible study, and first time there's 20 people, five people came to the Lord. So we'd have like a little worship time. I'd share about five, 10 minutes, because that's about all I had. And then I'd give an invitation for people to follow Jesus, and then I'd baptize them in the bathtub, and then close in prayer, and then feed people, and you know, that's it. Well, after about- You are good at feeding people. Four months, yeah, I love, that's my love language. I love barbecuing. After about four, months or so we had over 100 people showing up and we had 80 people in in uh, small groups so i go to my professor and i say hey i need an extension on my paper i can't finish it we give until monday and he goes why so i share with him what happens so he looks at me and he goes okay why did you and julie ever come to fuller and i said well we want to be church planners he looked at me and he goes well you planted a church i'm like no i didn't he goes okay we have a school of psychology here at fuller and you're in denial right now. And I'm going to send you over there because <laughs> you have planted a church. <laughs> well, he literally called up a lawyer to set an appointment for me. And we got incorporated. 
we went 501c3, got our status, nonprofit status, and we started a church called Vision Christian Fellowship in Pasadena, which is still going. Yeah, still going. Yeah, we turned it over to a pastor. I, I'm too ADD, and you know, I mean, I mean, I'm, you, not, I'm not very pastoral. You, <laughs> you. <laughs> so you got to connect the story though yeah. of the growing operation to the PNG interview. Oh, so okay, so this is great. So I'm at PNG. They usually have about nine interviews for this, for working for that company. Yeah. Okay. Really intense interview process, psychological exams, yada yada yada. You know, personality stuff. So I'm about my third interview in, and this guy walks in. And I've never seen him, and he's from Cincinnati. So he sits down. And he goes, he used to ask me these questions, you know, oh, where are you from? Da da da. You know, where'd you go to school? Then he goes into, well, okay, what was your very first job? <laughs> oh my gosh, Steve! I was like, you know, right? I'm like, Whoops. okay, do I lie? Do I not lie? Well, I'm a Christian. I can't lie. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get this job. So what the heck? I'll just share, you know. Yeah. And you know, so I'm going to speak truth. So I started sharing with him a story, and he stops me about ten minutes into it. Or a few minutes into it, and he goes, "I'll be right back." And he goes out of the room, the interview room, and I'm thinking, "Okay, statues of limitations." I'm thinking, "I know." Like, okay. <laughs> I'm getting kind of concerned here. Calling security. And, you know, yeah, calling security. Get this guy out of here. Well, he comes in with two other guys, and they're also from Cincinnati. And they said, "Okay, start from the top." And so I start sharing from the top the story, and. They are laughing, and they're asking me questions. How'd you figure out price point? What'd you do about distribution? How'd you not get caught? You know, where'd you grow it? How'd you figure out your cash flow situation? I mean, on and on and on. I'm thinking, where is this going, right? And at the end of it, they're just laughing, and they walk out. And I'm like, all right. You gotta be puzzled. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally bewildered, and I'm thinking, the you know, next thing I'm gonna be walked out of the room, yeah. or walked out of the building. So the gal from my Sunday school, who actually helped me get the job in the first place, who's my manager, came in and says, Kay, because I don't know what you just said to these guys, but they said to hire you right now. <laughs> Forget the other five interviews or whatever yeah, yeah. and uh, give you the job because I was one of the most entrepreneurial guys I've ever met. That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. So you plant this church. At what point did you hand it off? About a year later, we planted with some other folks, and there was other people who were more pastoral. We were being mentored by some friends from overseas at the time who was attending Fuller, and so we turned it over to them. And I started working more full-time for Peter Wagner for his ministry. Yeah. So from 92 to 99, ran his ministry, moved here to Colorado Springs in 96, and we built the World Prayer Center on the New Life Church campus here in Colorado Springs. Raised all the money for that, did a lot of traveling for him, speaking for him on prayer, and praying for the unreached people groups of the 1040 window, people who have no access to the mm-hmm. gospel or, or who Jesus was. So we were praying, we were mobilizing people to pray for that. Yeah. And then in 99, uh, left the ministry at that point, just really sensed God telling me to leave. And then for two years, just went through what we call wilderness time, you know, just sort of waiting on God, which for, you know, type A guys like us, you know, that's like hell because you just got to trust God and wait yeah. on him. And then in 2001, August, um, started a humanitarian organization with some friends and then also started a consulting business, which I did for 11 years. And we consulted on uh, disaster response mitigation and incorporating church and private sector groups and working with the government when it came to disasters in the United States and abroad. 
Yeah. And of course, 2001 was a crazy time, you know, with 9-11. Oh my gosh, yeah. And uh, they were concerned about attacks on the country. And so they needed to figure out, how do you work with church groups when they show up at a disaster? And they had no documents on it. So we, mm. my company actually mm. helped write the white papers for the White House, Homeland Security Council, Department of Defense, DHS at that time, just starting up, uh, FEMA, and other agencies as well. So let's go back to Peter Wagner. Yep. Kind of explain to the listeners who he is, because he is one of the most fascinating dudes mm. I have ever mm. met in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I loved the man. So Peter Wagner was a missionary in Bolivia, and he always wondered why, and he came from a non-charismatic expression so of faith, and he always wondered why the charismatic churches grew faster than the ones that weren't charismatic. And he tied it into prayer. He tied it into there's something about this. So he was a professor of church growth at Fuller Seminary when he came back to the States. And basically church growth is all about, you know, why do churches grow? Mm-hmm. And so he began investigating and doing research on it. So he started writing many, many books on that. I mean, I mean, I think he has over 100 plus books. He passed away a couple of years ago. And so I was his teaching assistant at Fuller. So I would grade papers. In fact, one paper I helped grade was Rick Warren's uh, purpose driven. It was his doctorate at Fuller Seminary. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, I said to Peter, I said, Peter, this guy really knows his stuff. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Peter, Peter said, he's a leader and he's going to do amazing things for the kingdom. And I was like, wow. And sure enough, he was. But the beautiful thing about Peter was not only was he a teacher, but he was also very prophetic in that he really understood and saw where the church was going. And he saw the need for prayer mobilization and a deeper awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to not only the deepening of your faith in Christ, but also in seeing people come to know Jesus as well. So with prayer, spiritual warfare, uh, church growth, he really loved the church. And he was able to identify trends in the church as well, which he was able to articulate so well in books that he would write, you know, the growth of non-denominational churches, for example. Mm-hmm. Which at the, originally he called it the New Apostolic Reformation, you know. Yeah. Um, now he then he changed it to post-denominational churches, which was not very welcome because you know post-denominational, like yeah. after all denominations, right? Yeah. But so he changed it to New Apostolic Reformation of these kind of these independent churches out there that aren't affiliated to a denomination but are growing and thriving and seeing people come to Christ and really vibrant, life-giving churches. So those years that you were consulting. Disaster relief mitigation. Mm-hmm. We're teaching the government how to yep. interface with private sector and churches. Churches. Yep. Tell me about those years. Yeah, it was a great time in that we were really able to help influence in some many ways policy within the government on working with the church and working with the private sector. So many of our clients were not only church groups, but also private sector companies like Home Depot, Delta Airlines, Citibank, Walmart was a client of ours, where we would help them build their emergency operations centers and make sure that they had a phone line or an internet connection directly into the government yeah. so that they could coordinate their efforts when it comes to disaster response. So, you know, so we had a number of contracts in the private sector as well. So any stories from those years that really kind of stick out, that kind of encapsulate just what was going on in your life and the kinds of connections that you were starting to make because 
I know you as one of the most connected, probably the most connected dude that I know. And I would assume that those years really started to open up mm. connections that are just to people that are really world changers, serious entrepreneurs, right. and that's such. So when a disaster hits a country, uh, it impacts the whole society. So not only the faith-based community, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Buddhist, because we would work a lot overseas, but also the private sector, businesses yeah. were destroyed or they were trying to recoup or you know get back to business. And the government wants them to get back because they've started paying taxes and stabilizes the, the whole culture and society of the place. And so I was really blessed in that my partners and I, what we decided to do is we had a for-profit company that did the consulting work mm -hmm. and we had a non-profit, which was a humanitarian organization. And what we did is we capped our salaries at the for-profit company and we gave away all our profits above that. Mm. And we gave in excess of tens of millions of dollars to the non-profit during that time frame of 11 years. And we used it to really build capacity of indigenous national mom and pop kind of organizations that were overlooked in these countries to build their expertise, their understanding of how to mitigate disaster situations. So when a disaster hits, like a tsunami, for example, in Aceh, I think one of the most striking examples of that was, was going there to Indonesia. And luckily I had a lot of friends there. I'd been going there since about 95 mm -hmm. and who were business people. And they were literally moving trucks of disaster aid into Aceh. And then what I would do is I would help. I got on there about uh, about six days after. I mean, the smell and the stench of death. Mm. I mean, 100,000 people dead in this one town of Aceh. Yeah. And, I mean, they were literally digging up bodies still. Mm. Horrible. Mass graves, the whole thing. And my friends were bringing in trucks. And when they got there, there weren't enough people to actually distribute. So I worked with the local government to help coordinate that, local NGOs that I knew, nonprofits that did disaster response that we had trained few years before and then then the government started coming in un u.s navy was there uh, and so i was able to coordinate with as a u.s citizen i was able to coordinate with the u.s government and the navy for helicopter shipments and medical aid and bringing teams on to the country singapore government did amazing work there uh, I, I had friends in that space you know they put up the tower that they still use at this airport they brought a portable tower for the planes because there's so many planes coming into that airport they had their air traffic control was out of hand, but to see life, there was. I remember this one story. I was sitting there and I was walking through, and literally this town of about a hundred thousand was wiped out. The tsunami came in and took everybody out to see, and it was flattened. And mm -hmm. you've probably seen just pictures of it. You know, like maybe a building would be standing out of, you know, tens of thousands of buildings, debris everywhere. And this man came up to me and he goes, uh, I live in this village and the roads are washed out and we have 400 people in this village and there's only 18 of us left. And he goes, I got in a boat and I spent three days to get here and we need rice. So I walked him into this operation center and we were able to get him not only a boat with a motor because he actually came down without a motor. And we were able to set up regular days. shipments. Yeah. We got him regular shipments of rice and food for those eight, whatever number of people left over. Yeah. But that's story after story. And, and just to see that, one of the first things we did was go to um, 
Jalalabad, Afghanistan, on December 15th, 2001, which was right after we... The bombing started. The bombing started in Torbor and all that. It just ended. And uh, I was able to go through Peshawar through a Christian group that knew the Eastern Alliance commander. And he met us at, he had his troops meet us at the border of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and actually drove us in and we gave over $50,000 worth of medicine to a Red Crescent hospital there for a hospital that was only had enough beds for 400 or actually it was more like two, 300. And there was over 2000 people there and they would do surgeries on a concrete block. You could still see the blood stains on the concrete block. It looked like civil war. I mean, they had rusted saws and, and hammers and chisels. I mean, it was just horrible without any anesthesia, no antibiotics. Yeah, they would cauterize them with a fire that was next to them with metal. And it just broke your heart. And when I handed the medicine to him, the doctor just started weeping. He goes, I haven't seen these in 10 years. In the United States, we helped out with uh, Katrina. Um, we worked very closely with uh, Walmart, where they helped. They were fantastic. They gave us um, blacked-out stores, stores that they had closed, and we used them as staging areas for ice and food and water. Yeah just outside of the disaster zone of Katrina because we knew where it was going to hit. And we were able to coordinate efforts with FEMA and others to help the people in those in those disaster zones and help coordinate with um, faith-based groups that wanted to go in. But we would coordinate it through government agencies and putting them where it was needed most. And uh, so it was, it was very, very fulfilling work to do that. So what happened to that business? Well, the, the nonprofit. So we decided that we weren't going to raise money for the nonprofit that as long as we had money coming in for the for-profit side, we would continue the nonprofit. Yeah. So often in, in nonprofit space and Christian ministries, we just continue to do or keep alive these ministries and organizations just because we feel like we're supposed to. But we felt, in a sense, and this is obviously an individual expression, we said if we ran out of money or the contracts ended, then we would shut down the nonprofit. And after 11 years, our contracts dried up, and we moved on different administration, and uh, we shut down the nonprofit as well. So what did you do after that? Well, for the next number of years, and as we just, I basically just did consulting work, try to figure out what I was going to do, you know, work-wise, you know, pay the bills and all. Uh, so I did consulting work for ministries, businesses, some of it in disaster space, but mainly in connections. So I do a lot of international business development. And to the point where I am now where I do two things. One is I have an investment banking company with a friend of mine, firm, where we take new technologies and we license them here from the United States and take them to Asia because of my connections, and we sell them overseas. Mm -hmm. We also do raises for companies in the tech business as well as land deals here in the United States. And then on the ministry side of the house, I work for an organization called Generous Giving and Generosity Path, which comes alongside of people in their areas of generosity. Yeah. From a biblical viewpoint. Yeah. So I brought Steve on here, so that way he could chime in whenever <laughs> you needed to elaborate a little bit more on something that was missing. But right before we got started, I asked, how did you two meet? And I love this story. That's a funny story. Actually, that was pretty serious, Kay. We're normally laughing through our conversations together, but, you know, that was good. So I live probably just 12 minutes away, really close by, and we'd never met. I was involved in 
a production company. We just had our nose to the grindstone. We were working hard. And I really wasn't doing a lot of connecting out there with people. I was sort of doing my calling and staying busy at that. And in the early days when Costco first arrived here in Colorado, they only had a Costco up in the south end of Denver, which is about an hour away. Yeah. So we would make sort of a weekly trip. Uh, my wife, Nellie, and I would make a weekly trip up there, sort of load up and then, you know, come back. And one of these times I'm filling gas at their gas station and this guy is standing over there doing the same thing. And we're kind of wired the same, like we've never met a stranger. So I'm going, how you, how you doing? You know, we're yeah. like bantering back and forth. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, short conversation. He hands me his card. I'm thinking, God, look at that last name. I'm not even sure. Yeah, here are mine guy, whatever that is. And I take the card and, um, you know, do what I usually do with business cards, throw it away. And um, why do you do that? Because well, you know, this because because you you have a story about meeting Charles Charlie Denler. I do. Our, our, our holy smoke. Well, brother. I've always felt okay. like you know it, my life journey is interesting, and I won't get into it. But I've always felt like if this is a relationship I'm supposed to you know be connected to in some way, that'll happen, and usually isn't going to be through a business card. Yeah. You know. Okay. So, yeah. You know, and plus I just wasn't that organized. So, you know, I, I got home. So fast forward a year, it's Christmas time. My wife's doing something with the ladies. I'm looking for something to do. And I have a friend who's a doctor here in town who is the president of the El Paso Medical Society. And he said, well, just come with me. I'm going to this party tonight. I think you'll like it. So we show up at Kay's house, ring the doorbell. Kay answers the door. And I'm going, whoa, you're the dude I met at the parking lot at Costco. And he goes, I remember. And that's technically how we really met again. And, uh, Hung out that night, and that's where we first got to know each other. And and he's like, dude, you know, how come I haven't met you before? Like, where have you been? And, yeah. you know, I explained all that. And then we realized we had a lot in common. We had similar similar journeys, had a lot of common uh, relationships. And and then the, uh, the friendship started. So that was a, a weird beginning, but uh, very cool. Steve, we will get to your story at some episode in the near future, Absolutely. probably before the end of 2019. I've got it kind of tentatively slated for the for this first year. Kay, where has this innate ability to connect with people and to connect people? Because you're you're an amazing connector. You'll just Hey, you need to meet this dude, and you'll just make an introduction, or you'll send me their their contact info. And you see, kind of reach out. What, is that something that's natural, and you've worked to develop it, or is what? I've always loved people. I've always loved hearing their stories, and the greatest joy I have in my life is listening to someone's stories, finding out what their destiny and call is, and helping them get there. So it's truly out of a sincere desire to see people move into their calling of their lives. And so I just love meeting people. And so, I mean, whether it's a taxi driver in Jakarta or a Chinese businesswoman in Thailand or, yeah. or some guy who runs a book company in Kenya, whatever, I just love hearing their stories. Yeah. And so I think people sense that, feel that. And uh, I love eating, so I always find out what their favorite food is, and we go out to eat. And, and if you see my posts, it's always around food of some sort, because my love language is eating and 
you know, fellowship. And because, you know, I I tell people, I said, I love to eat because I'm just preparing for the great banquet at table. You know, this is all like preparatory kind of training program, you know, here on this side of the glory, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be a holy smoke section up there and, and holy, you know, in the, mm. the banquet table, right, Steve? Yes, sir. <laughs> so there'll be a big old barbecue and all some be... really good cigars. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll never, they'll never die out and have big, big long ashes, you know. <laughs> so I just love people, and I think that's what really has fueled sort of this gift desire. And the way I my my number one giftedness, or giftedness, or you know, in the strength finders. Yeah. My number one is connectedness. So when I meet someone, I'm immediately thinking, who do I need to connect that person to? Mm. How can I help them succeed and thrive and live? A friend of ours, um, Matt Hurd, who's a, who's a, a pastor uh, at Northland Church in Orlando, yeah. he wrote a great book called L- Life with a Capital L. It's a great and, book. Oh, it's an awesome book. And then John Wirt says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I think in the West, we have really, when you say this, we really know how to do the way and the truth. We got doctrine down. We got systematic stuff down. We know how to behave as a believer, but we've lost the life in Jesus. Where it's one of abundance and blessing and thriving. And it's not a name it or claim it, blab it and grab it kind of prosperity mm-hmm. doctrine. It's God wants us to enjoy the beauty of, say, us sitting out here listening to the wind blowing in the creation that he's created of the trees or the beauty of an art or a movie that has been created or for example a wonderful cigar that i'm smoking right now you know and or it's a great scotch you know it's beautiful hibiki or or you know lagavulin 17 and (laughs) pairing it with a great cigar and it's just god created those things for us to enjoy you know to be stewards of and it tastes better quite candidly when it's with other people to share with true and so you know my best friend here steve i mean there's nothing better like when the fire is going in my backyard in the crib here so to speak the man cave of the outside where holy smoke started which you can hear about in episode one that there's been some magical conversations that have really happened right, steve? yep and what's been so great is you know we're colorado dudes so like well, there's been snow on the ground and snow coming down mm-hmm. and we got the fire lit we got hats on and coats, and we're fine. You know, Colorado's not a brutally cold place like a lot of the country. So yeah. even our winters are pretty mild, and the sun comes out every day. We have 300 days of sunshine a year. Yeah. So it's a great environment for just connecting like that. And I remember when Kay mentioned earlier about, you know, and you mentioned earlier about how what a connector he is. And, you know, that really intrigued me early because – he would give away these contacts. You know, it'd be like, man, you got to meet this guy, or you're in this business, you got to meet this guy, you're in this ministry space, you know, you got to meet these guys. Well, most guys that I had ever met doing that wanted to monetize all that relationship. Here was a guy freely giving away yeah. all these remarkable connections. And I thought, that's, you know, that's different. That's, a, yeah. you know, and yet at the same time, we're, we're all part of God's family. And I think we silo sometimes into these little communities where we, we have our little thiefdoms, our kingdoms, you know, yeah. and that's not the kingdom of God. You know, we've often create this distinction between sort of church people and kingdom people. Kingdom people are people that see Christians wherever you find them, and they're everywhere. And sometimes they're Muslims who are now followers of Jesus. 
Sometimes they're Catholics that just love Jesus, but they, you know, they understand the difference between a silo, really, and the kingdom of God. And I love that because, you know, the, to me, that was the whole reason Jesus came. He said, look, the kingdom of God is among you. You know, when the, when the angel announced his coming, he said, you'll call him Emmanuel because he'll save his people from hell? No, he said, save the, his people from their sins. And sin is the thing that destroys your life. It's sort of the ultimate stupidity when you think about it. Yeah. And so here is the kingdom of God, which shows you how to live better. And that gets back to that life aspect. How do you live well? How do you live with God so you're not destroying your friendships and your marriage and your relationships? How do you then bring blessing to all those spaces and enjoy all of life, including good food, beauty, art, cigars, whatever it is, you're doing all of the glory of God. Yeah. So I think Kay models that beautifully. And he's got a gift of hospitality. He loves to serve people. And that brings people right in as well. He's probably more gifted in that of anyone I've ever seen. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. So has that journey to becoming a kingdom believer, if you will, was that a journey? Was there like a turning point in that? Or were you always kind of, when you were brought up by Pastor Dave and mentored by him and mentored at Fuller, was that something that you've always had? Or is that kind of a journey that you've been awakened to? It's a great question. So I would say that I've always had as part of my culture, as part of how I'm built, wired is to really serve. I love serving mm -hmm. and I love people. So I serve people, love people. And my natural expression of that is I have two big green eggs. So I love barbecuing and feeding people and enjoying meals and hanging out in fellowship. Anyone and, that follows me on Facebook, oh, there, usually there's like one or two green, <laughs> when you're in town, there's usually one or two green egg posts with a big slab of meat that's all <laughs> there you go yep. all, all seasoned and flavored yeah, and yeah. nice and crusty yeah. from being in there and yeah it looks delicious yeah so I, I love doing that and just loving people like that but my formative years in university at uh, Occidental College one of the first things that we learned about was servant leadership Robert Greenleaf's book and then the other one was cost of discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. And then the third book was Life Together. Those were the kind of three books that we all kind of cut our, you know, chops on when we Wrote first got Life Together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well. Okay. Yeah. And it talked about his his uh, community experience and that. And, you know, living in community is hard. You know, there's tension. There is there is issues. There's problems with that. And there's a dying to self that has to happen. And I did it in the beginning really out of a drivenness to serve, 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 thinking that it was works-oriented. But then what happened was we began reading Piper stuff of and Dan Fuller's, Professor Dan Fuller's at Fuller about Christian hedonism. That there's joy in the midst of it all as well. That our chief, you know, I mean, the catechism, Westminster Catechism, where the chief aim was purpose of mankind is of life is to worship God and enjoy him forever. So worshiping God, loving God and enjoying him. So how do you enjoy him in the midst of all that? And the expression that I had in my life and the way I was gifted and crafted and how God created me was to serve and love people. And so it transitioned over the course of years of being a driven kind of thing, a works orientation to one of really of grace and love. And I just love doing that. And, you know, there's still times where, you know, I kick into the Martha thing for sure. But it's really embracing the fact that you can be a Mary and enjoy the presence of God in the midst of service 
and, and loving people through that and seeing Jesus work in and through you. You were definitely an example in my life of that. Oh, thanks, That's bro. just, it, it, yeah, you were one of the most special people in my life, and I just love <laughs> you to that. Thanks, bro. So how'd you get into cigars? So one of the first cigars I've ever had was celebrating the birth of my second daughter. I have five daughters, and she was born, and a friend of mine at that time brought a cigar over, and he goes, hey, you know, there's a, you know, when you have a baby, you have to have a cigar. And I was like, really? So I tried a cigar, and I you know, made it through half of it. And uh, I remember we were sitting on a bench in the, in the park smoking a stick and, and with no drink or nothing, right? Yeah. And then I said, man, this, this is actually pretty nice. It's pretty relaxing. And you can have a good conversation with it. And, and it's, in some ways, men need props. They need a reason True. to do stuff, right? Yeah. So what I started doing was just start inviting guys over and we'd have a cigar once in a while and that kind of escalated. How old were you, <laughs> old were you at the time? Well, it would be, what, 21 years ago. So I would be 34. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, now I go to cities and countries all over the world, and, and it's, it's so much fun, bro. I mean, going to a city, and you get invited to Holy Smokes, because I'll say, hey, I'm coming to Birmingham, or I'm coming to Atlanta yeah. on these dates. You know, does anybody have Holy Smokes going on? And so guys will, you know, they invite me to theirs, or to their house, or maybe to a cigar lounge, and I get to meet guys or gals that I've never, I mean, I have no idea who they are. And yet, there's a bond there, yeah. of holy smokes, and and you know, after a while, you start building a relationship with them, and then you become more intentional. So when you go to that town, you say, "Hey, I'm coming to town. Let's get together, yeah, and call some of your friends and let's just hang out." And I think the most heartwarming or endearing thing that I've seen with the growth of holy smokes and as it's been scaling, and Steve has experienced this, and many of us has experienced this, is when we go to a town and we meet people that we don't even know, we'd have no clue, and we're in a foreign or a town that we've never been to, and yet we're able to hang out with people and have a great time. Fantastic. Any other stories that would be good, Steve, to kind of pull out of him? I think he covered some good ground there, for sure. I should share about the Kigali thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how do you want me to set that up? Um, do you have a foreign story? Okay. Story from overseas. That's fantastic. So, Kay, do you have any foreign stories of traveling and getting to meet people? So I have a really funny story. Yeah. So I'm smoking a cigar uh, with a friend in Tahiri Square in Beirut, Lebanon. Yeah. Having a nice Lebanese coffee. Nice. Smoking a cigar. Yes. Looking over the Mediterranean. It was, it was, it was beautiful, right? Just enjoying it, enjoying the conversation, about enjoying what the years coffee. Is? Gosh, I would say it's about 10 years ago. Okay. And uh, I'm sitting there and he goes, hey, Kay, I got a buddy of mine coming in. And he's on furlough, you know. He's a missionary in Rwanda. And he's coming to Lebanon for a week to hang out with me because we went to Bible college together. And I said, oh, cool, what's his name? And uh, his name's Nathan. And he's down there, and he has an agricultural nonprofit that he does that does water. And he also you know, grows crops, you know, creating jobs. And he's in Uganda? Uh, Rwanda. Rwanda. Yeah, outside okay, of gotcha. Kigali. Yep. And uh, so he comes and has a cigar with us, and you know, we're talking. Yeah. And he goes, Okay, I got a really funny story. I said, Yeah, tell me about it, bro. And you know, I'm getting to know him and his story of how he ended up in Rwanda. And he goes, um, A board member on my nonprofit back in the States has two cigar lounges in San Diego. 
And he was telling Arturo Fuente, which is a famous cigar company, that he has, he's on this board of a person that works in Rwanda doing agriculture. So the head of Arturo Fuente said, well, listen, we can't get Cameroon tobacco because Cameroon, the country is in free fall and it's a failed state. It's going through a revolution or something like that at the time. And we can't get any tobacco out. So it's really hurting our supply. So would he be open to growing Cameroon seed tobacco in Rwanda? So they got soil samples. They sent over seeds. And he said, Kay, he goes, they're sending me seeds you know, next month when I'm back. And we're going to test it. And we're going to see. And who knows, Kay, maybe you'll see you know, Cameroon wrapped tobacco or Cameroon tobacco grown yeah. in Rwanda by me. I said, oh, bro, that's awesome. That's so much fun. You know? So we start laughing about it. And we light up another cigar. Start talking about him and his life and where God's at, you know, in his life. Well, about two years later, I'm in Orange County, California, going to a Holy Smokes chapter run by some friends there. I'm walking across the street in suburban Orange County, okay, in Tustin, California. Mm-hmm. I'm walking across the street and I hear this guy goes, Hey, Kay, Kay, you know, down the street. And he comes running up to me. I said, Nathan, what are you doing here? And he's the guy that I had from Rwanda. He goes, hey, I'm on furlough. I'm heading down to Nicaragua. And I just want you to full circle here. I wanted to tell you that we shipped two containers of Cameroon tobacco to be cured down in South America. I'm going to go visit it because the shipment's going to be there. Yeah. And now he's growing tobacco for Ashton. He's growing for some other tobacco companies. And because tobacco is a cash crop, much more so than, say, corn, he's able to actually do more with the profits out of that. He's doing more orphanages. He's doing more water wells. He's um, starting micro businesses for people. And God's really using that. Now, what's great about this in Holy Smokes is that we have uh, cigar manufacturers now, part of this, yes. who are Christian guys that started cigar companies. So there's one, Joe Basil. Safari who, Cigars. Safari Cigars, fantastic, uh, blended by Padron. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, a second guy that we have is Reed Grafke with Providencia Cigars out of Honduras. We have another person, Charles Robinson, with, uh, out of Nashville, that has a cigar company called Atsaniki. And then a friend, Luciano Morales, who owns a company out of Chicago called Ace, a Cuban experience, A-C-E. And Ace is a fantastic cigar, a very premium cigar. And if you're basketball, he blended a cigar for Dominique Wilkins, you know, who's a famous <laughs> NBA player. And his partner is Tiago out of the Spurs and now in New York City as a coach. I remember Dominique winning the dunk competition when I was young. Monster guy. I got to have a cigar with him, had a great conversation with oh. him. Not only about the Lord, but just his life, you know, just yeah. hearing his story. Amazing, amazing yeah. man. And Luciano manufactures over two and a half million cigars a year now. So it's great to see believers followers of Jesus that are in the cigar industry making a real impact and blessing the communities that they're growing and manufacturing cigars. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So we are going to close with rapid fire questions. 
Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a book summary subscription that has more than 2,500 titles in their archives. Uh, they distill the key thoughts and points to make an entire book in easily digestible 15 minute reads. When I first signed up in 2018, I read Peter Diamandis's book, Abundance. By the way, I'd love to have a cigar with that dude. I was so blown away that I got it on my Kindle and I read it twice. Others like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, I honestly was quite fine with just the Blinkist version, Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, Robert Glazer's Elevate, and a whole host of business, management, personal development, psychology, health titles, many more subjects, read in their beautifully designed mobile app at their website, export to your Kindle, or listen to the audio version on the go. I prefer to listen while I read along right before I go to sleep. I fell in love with this service last year and have been turning friends onto them ever since. So you as a listener have our word that any products or services that we advertise on the show, we personally use. And we're not just fans, but we're raving fans. Blinkist is definitely in that category. Try it for a seven-day free trial if you use our affiliate link in the show notes or when you go to holysmokes.club slash blink. It's an easy way for you to help support all the work that Carl, Kay, myself, and my team put into keeping the show going. So please, if saving hours and hours by reading a well-written summary of some of the top books out there sounds like something you'd want to try for seven days, click on that affiliate link, holysmokes.club slash blink. This episode is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters. For $5 a month or more, you can get access to Holy Smokes episodes that are ad free, plus a whole bunch of other bonuses. Just go to patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. And finally brought to you by our generous donors. We are a nonprofit and you can make a tax deductible donation when you go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And the links for both Patreon and PayPal will be in the show notes. Now on to rapid fire questions. Rapid fire. Fire. Cigars or pipe? Cigars. Favorite cigar? Oh, depends on the mood, but I would say Tatuaje is one of my favorite cigars. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? That's a hard one because a lot of friends give me cigars, so I really don't know. Yeah. But I would say they are probably Cuban cigars. Uh, there's a man down in um, Dallas who had a cigar in his humidor for almost 25 years pre-embargo, and he gave me a Cuban cigar. I can't even imagine what that thing was worth. Yeah. And it was a fantastic smoke. So it was worth it? Because that's the next question. Was it worth it? Totally worth it. But the relationship with him was even more precious. That's awesome. Best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar you ever smoked? Best dollar-for-dollar? Dollar, um, gosh. The scary thing is I've probably smoked pretty much every cigar <laughs> in the world, <laughs> practically. I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I couldn't really tell you, but I smoke everything. I mean, I think uh, I think Padrones are great cigars. They're fantastic. Monte Cristo is a good smoke. I, I don't know, Steve. I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, we've smoked a lot of cigars lot together, of cigars. bro. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I love say. Ligas. Ligas, yeah. Ligas are, used to be better than they are Liga 9s. Yeah. yeah. I think Oliva makes great cigars. Yeah. 
There's a lot of, they're, they're getting better and better. You know, it used to be Cuba owned the whole game. Mm-hmm. Now Nicaragua is really amazing and yep. some of these other cigars around the world. Yeah, Dominican Republic has great cigars. La Galera's are very good. La Palina's another great cigar. Yeah. <laughs> we go on and on. I mean, it's like, uh, it depends on the mood that you're in and then also, I think it's the context in which you're in. Yeah. yeah. With the people that you're with, you know, and just enjoying the cigars that they like as well. And that's the great thing about this group. We all share. You know, it tastes better when we share, so. Now I'm going to be throwing in some non-cigar questions. Okay. Star Wars or Star Trek? Ooh. So I'm 55, so I grew up with Star Trek, but uh, I love Star Wars. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? I love dogs, but my wife loves cats. End of discussion. (laughs) (laughs) What mythical creature would improve the world most if it existed? Mythical creature? I'm not sure. If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you have done? Probably breaking some international law relative to smuggling Bibles. What was your nickname in college or growing up? Nana. Nana. Yeah. What's the meaning? So my grandmother in Japan cannot say junior because I'm a junior. Yes. And so it somehow evolved to Nana. So my nickname is Nana. Nana. Favorite liquid pairing with a smoke? Ooh. I would say Lagavulin 17-year-old with a really bold cigar. What's your most memorable cigar experience? Mm, I've had so many. I would say, though I love groups, but I think some of the most memorable experience would be sitting back here with one or two guys under this just brilliant Colorado night sky with a fire going and just sitting there and just enjoying each other's company. Final two questions. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, who would they be? You can't name Jesus just because everyone's going to say Jesus. Everybody's going to name Jesus. I would say number one would be Winston Churchill because of the times and also his own personal journey itself. I mean, he was, he's a complex character and the times that he lived in and the leader that he was. And of course, his great love for cigars. Yes. Many yes. cigars. So I'd have to have a problem probably just trying to keep up with them on that one. Number two would be, let's see, Charles Spurgeon because of the whole theology and sort of figuring out where his heart's at with that and how he came about doing that. And also just find out what kind of cigars did he smoke? You know, yeah. What kind of cigars yeah. did they smoke back then, right? Yeah, no kidding. It's kind of a historical question in the context of it all. And the third, which is more of a group than more than a person, We'd be just hanging out with the Inklings, right? Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis together. And even though they're pipe dudes, that's awesome. But I don't think they'd mind if I just lit up a cigar and just hung out and just listened to them and and walk through with them and just find out their hearts and their stories. So last question. If we meet one year from now and I have a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? The fact that over... 10,000 men and women are experiencing the Holy Smokes. Over 10,000? Yeah. That's great. The follow-up question is, what do you need to get that done? And I would assume it'd be people share this podcast, people invite 
people to the group, the Facebook group. Yep. And and also we're going to be launching a public Holy Smokes internet page to really begin networking people who aren't hung up about having to hide in the shadows so to speak of smoke cigars and having a scotch. Okay, Hidomini, thank you for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let's get this done for you. It's a pleasure. One year from now, 10,000 in the group. There you go. Let's go for it. We're all going to be able to do it together. <laughs>